This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. All right, we're on it. I never gave a fuck. I never gave a fuck about what niggas thought about me. I mean, I did, but like, fuck it, you know what I'm saying? Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Oh my God, that was that your longest pause ever, Joe? Maybe? No. Uh, no, I said it right. Maybe there was a stall in the internet. Ah, <laughs> fuck the internet. Because <laughs> the pause wasn't very, you know, wasn't very measured on my part. Well, I guess I'm just impatient. What the hell? It's true. Yeah. Well, you know, hey, that leads us to our, for our first topic. Um, we were uh, discussing off mic um, the uh, the insistence of the Internet. And it's like uh, just it pushing things and like, you know, in your Facebook feed, circulating articles aggressively according to whatever algorithm you're cursed with. But like just how movies that you and I often either champion or recommend or, you know, maybe sometimes we have problems with, but they're, they're in the zeitgeist and they're, they're getting, they're of a, a, a quality that seems to be what people are kind of craving. And, you know, oftentimes they're really good character driven pieces with good ensembles and performances. And they're just solid movies, movies that we can get behind, but then they're pushed with such fervor, with such intensity that the people who come to the party like a week or two too late and they've seen so much about it about it in terms of like clickbait articles and everything that like it starts to eclipse the actual like product. Product feels gross. The actual work of art. <laughs> um and so like the hype is just like something that we've discussed, I think since we started doing the podcast, it's never not been an issue, you know, with popular culture, but it's just like, it's really hard to disentangle, especially with like the insistence of the like kind of modern cycle of either news or entertainment. Like this is the only story. This is the only story. Now it's done. Now this is the only story. And so you're just like, Jesus Christ, like, for a week, I thought everybody in the world was a pervert, which is not untrue. But uh, <laughs> it's just like the the sort of the the habit of like our cycle of insistence, you know, where it's just like something is in your face, and like we just did just internet, calm the fuck down. Like, get la- Lady Bird is a great movie. Everybody, go out and see it at whatever pace you need to. Just make. <laughs> that movies like that can still exist like exactly. and everybody who's screaming that it's the the best thing good for you but you're also annoying a lot of other people who haven't had an opportunity to see it yet <laughs> for me i call this the blair witch effect um because yeah. i can still i remember so vividly 1999 going to see the blair witch project at the one theater 
in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota that had it, you know, before it went really wide, before they really realized how big of a fucking deal that movie was going to be. Yeah. Just seeing it and being blown away with with my best buddy. We loved going to see movies together. So, of course, we sought out this movie, waited in line for it, you know, went to the city and loved it. And then we it's not like we were clearly we were not the only source of hype at our high school that we were at. But we mm-hmm. certainly told our friends, go see this movie. It's awesome. It's so scary. And like we got into the whole lore and the history of it. And that hype just built and built for that fucking movie. And um, I, I, I don't remember any friend that I recommended it to like liking the movie. Like they actually hated it and they were pissed at me. I remember this anger, <laughs> this, yeah. like just disappointment, like and uh, it coming down and, and really it's it's it was a lesson on hype. And the the downfall of it, of expectations that just aren't fair for any piece of art, you know? Yeah. Um, and I loved that movie. And I still really, really love Blair Witch Project, you know? Maybe that's... Blair Witch Project's probably a good hold up someday. Although, we might have done that already. I can't remember. Um, uh, I think we've already discussed it at length uh, just because we talked about the new Blair Witch. So right, it would the be remake. Yeah, it'd be hard to have like a, a truly kind of isolated conversation about it since we've already discussed it. You know, that's true. Including that is, right now, <laughs> including right now. But yeah, it's just it's it's ultimate takeaway was just like yeah, expectations are not all. Are I would say typically not your friend when entering into any sort of you know uh, cultural or art experience. You know, like we all have them, but. Uh, I get why I guess I guess what I'm saying is I get why some people just avoid trailers these days, you know, or they yeah. don't they don't read reviews until they see a movie. Um, right. it's, har- it's hard for me to do that, but I probably should start considering that more because like that that idea of like clearing your mind of as many images or expectations for something uh, before you're about to experience it is probably for the best. You know, it, it's going to allow you to be more open minded to whatever yeah. that, that thing is. But uh, man, hype, man. What the fuck? Well, it, yeah, fuck, exactly. I'll echo your sentiment till the end of time. Fuck. So, like, I AFI Fest just happened in town a few weeks ago. And, like, that's when I find, um, like, oftentimes the movies, you know, are not slated for immediate distribution. So they're, they're still, like, a few months, you know, sometimes up to a year out from getting, you know, from being released theatrically. And so, like, oftentimes there aren't really trailers for it yet. So I saw, like, a handful of movies who I didn't really see anything other than stills. That's what happened with Blue Ruin when I saw that in 2013. There was only a still. There was no trailer out. And, like, being able to just get dropped into something that you have no real set of expectations for other than a synopsis and a picture like the the sense of being bowled over and truly genuinely surprised like that happened this year with a movie called Thoroughbreds which is Focus is putting out in uh March of next year and it's uh Anton Yelchin's one of his last performances and it's it's hysterical and it's great and it's like really solidly darkly comedic and genuinely surprising and like expertly written and there was no, and now a trailer has been released and I was like, fuck, I really wish. And having seen it, I can watch the trailer and have nothing really be spoiled. But I was like, Oh, I really wish that like everybody would know to go see this movie and could go in blind basically, mm. you know, and just be like surprised by the movie. 
And, you know, like, I think that level of enthusiasm where like a lot of hype has not been, you know, it's certainly been built because that's how movies get into festivals a lot of times. But like the the machinery of trailers and, uh, you know, teasers for trailers for, you know, whatever, whatever the rollout is, like, here's a sneak peek of the teaser of the trailer at the end of the week. And so like that whole machinery hasn't been locked into place yet. And so like a lot of critics and a lot of kind of tastemaker people go to festivals and they are genuinely surprised. And so they, they, they are the start of the fervor of like, Oh God, I finally a movie like this. And it starts to build and escalate anticipation for something. Mm -hmm. That's really the only chance movies have anymore is building an anticipation. Cause otherwise everything kind of gets lost in the noise Definitely. But the noise is the hype. It's really difficult to disentangle. But um, so, yeah, like to be genuinely surprised is kind of hard to come by. You mind if I pivot into our discussion now? I sense a pivot. Yes. Good. <laughs> I'm going to Jeremy pivot right now. Um, so a phenomenon that, uh, you know, is also not new, but uh, it sort of reached a new crescendo in the early to mid-2000s with uh, a movie called The Room, is uh, this the sense of... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sidebar real quick. Ooh. But the, something that bothers me is the idea of, like, a it's-so-bad-it's-good type movie. And, yes. like, there, that's yes. a whole kind of, like world of film experience that people have like latched onto. I, I think it's just like a, a sort of critically bankrupt way to describe something. Cause it's not just that something's bad that people like it, or it's so bad. I think there's a, there's a quality of, there's a truly outsider art quality to the things that catch on in sort of cult circles. That isn't, it, it's not just that it's bad. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's something, there's some otherness, some kind of like otherworldly quality to it where the timing is off and there's just something, there is something unhinged off the rails and therefore truly unpredictable about it. And I think as things get so streamlined, formulaic, and in order to, you know, have a return on investment, things have to, there has to be a formula, unfortunately, to most like major blockbusters, like the truly genuinely, what the fuck is this surprise people uh, kind of like get high off of, you know, and like Definitely. late night movie audiences, those are hard to come by. And like, you know, with every sort of square inch of the internet being combed over, we're all past, you know weirdo movies can be excavated like there there's still there's still some to come and you know but still they're they're getting fewer and far between you know and mm -hmm. so you what, tell me about your experience with the room for sure well if, before i dive into that specifically I, you really you really bring me back bring to, me our back to our conversation about, about uh miami connection Absolutely. And yeah. that's that's a movie you described as other I, when we talked about it. It's not that it's bad. I mean, it is a fun, bad movie. Yeah, it's it's technically not a very it's not a solid movie, of course. But that's just like a boring comment to make about. <laughs> right, it. right. Like objectively, the things we expect for a competent film are not 
in in high yeah. supply in that movie. <laughs> and Absolutely. That would make it fun. But what makes that movie special and what is the reason we talked about it on an episode? It was like the experience of seeing it in a crowded theater, everybody just losing their goddamn minds for it and just having a good time at the movies. And beyond that, it's it's that otherness of it. It's that lack of cohesion from scene to scene. It's it's just the fact that this person that made this movie, Miami Connection, um, believed so much in their vision that the stuff that didn't doesn't make any sense to uh, the 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 those of us that pay attention to these things. Like that's that's what makes it special, and which brings me to the room because the room is the nay plus ultra of that it is the example of that thing that this phenomenon. And um, by and large, or, you know, overall, I agree with your sentiment of the idea that this whole so bad it's good thing, um, I kind of don't, I don't buy the hype of that a lot of time uh, as well. Like, it's it just sort of like, yeah, but, you know, should I still watch this movie if you think it's so bad? Um, I guess, uh, to put it in another way, friend of friend of the show, Octay uh, Kozak, host of Over Under Movies, he, love, he is one of these guys, loves these so bad it's good movies, like, uh, a couple years ago for his birthday, he showed us Samurai Cop. Yes. I don't know. Have you seen that one? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's so he's going to kill me for this. I, I, I enjoyed it. It's funny. It's a good time. But uh-huh. compared to something like The Room, actually, The Room is like, to me, I have seen it multiple times. There is enjoyment to be had in its supreme otherness, in its alien artifactness, basically, is what The Room is. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, my I guess my um, uh, what's the term? My uh, like my patience really varies with this this subgenre of movies. Um, but the room I think is for good reason the the peak example of this thing. Um, maybe besides something like Troll Two, which is a very fun, enjoyable, bad movie um, mm-hmm. uh, as well. But for every one of those, you get something weird like, do you remember the Birdemic movie from like 10 years ago? Yeah, that was like after The Room had been like catching on in terms of like midnight screenings. Yeah, That documentary came out about Troll 2, best worst movie. Exactly, right? So there was this little mini sort of um, phenomenon going on where like maybe you could actually make a hit movie that crosses over. Yeah. With a bad movie. It's it's basically the plot of Mel Brooks the producers, right? And I think uh-huh. I think the guy that made Birdemic, um, I can't remember his name, but he certainly tried to leap onto that idea of like, well, this is a way for me to market this huge piece of shit that I've just put money into. Um, and I don't really care or feel like researching enough to know like how serious he was when he made Birdemic, but it certainly felt like, oh, this is the beginning of the cynical stage of this type of thing where People yeah. want to be in on the calculated about it and something right. gross, right? Yeah. And people want to be in on this joke, which uh, will which circles me back to the room again because the room and uh, the room could not be made the the room could not exist in its form without its earnestness. It it was made with just pure earnestness and uh, right. like it truly believes what it what it's putting out there. Um, because once you get that filmmaker or the actors in on the joke. Um, you get what, um, I mean, we'll have to provide more context, but Tommy Wiseau, the man behind the room, he's made other things since the room and it's all like 
totally unwatchable because the guy is in on the joke now and you just can't replicate this like lightning in a bottle phenomenon of like, how did this movie, the room happen? Um, Yeah. You just can't. Yeah. And it's, it's oftentimes people don't know why, you know, like the work resonates the way it does. Like it was made it and like Miami connection are made with true, like true kind of, like you're saying earnestness and an enthusiasm that's like intuitive. And that, that intuition is wholly unique. And when you start to look at what people are responding to, that's counterintuitive. That's like, Oh, I should do this more. Cause people seem that's a big laugh line in like the, you know, the screenings that I go to, like everybody likes when I say it like this. And so let's, it's just, it's less natural. And like, that's the otherness is because, because of that sense of like being natural and you're just like, what the, what is this? Like, how, how, how does this happen? Like, mm. you know, and, and so, uh, you know, having, having mapped out like this experience, we can now Jeremy pivot into a movie that was actually made about the phenomenon of the room. And Tommy Wiseau as like a character, the disaster artist, which, uh, opened both in Portland and LA this last weekend. Yeah. Very rude. and uh, it's a uh, I I don't know how many movies James Franco has directed a lot yeah and yeah of which I have never seen but this is like one that is seem seems like is probably the most crowd accessible um, despite being about a movie that it, you know is not <laughs> crowd accessible to like a large audience and. Um, it, it was it was interesting because like I've never seen the room. Sorry, like I haven't seen it all the way through. You're um, forgiven. Thank you, I appreciate it. So I asked you, I was like, "Am I going to be able to follow the movie?" And of course, like they, the, the this movie wouldn't exist. The disaster artist wouldn't exist on the scale that it does if it if you had to have it as a fr- the room as a frame of reference. I just don't think it would be bankrolled. It would be, it has to exist on its own merit. Totally. And I think that it will only give the room more life because of it. You know, if people like it and, uh, I was sitting next to a very audibly unhinged woman, uh, during the screening that I saw so much so that I thought it was a publicity stunt by a two four. Yeah. Like there's there's a crazy person next. Wait a minute. (laughs) But then she turned out to be the genuine article. (laughs) And then she turned to me two minutes before the movie was over. I was like, wait, this is, this is based on like a real thing. What? I was like, Oh, clearly it just works. Cause she was responding the whole time to the movie did not know it was based on a real person and a real set of events and a real movie that came to exist. So it's still the movie delivers like regardless of the source material. Hmm. And um, yeah, it's like, so if if we want to talk about the disaster artist, mm-hmm. uh, how did how did you how did you feel about it as a as a movie in itself? Well, um, yeah, I, I would say before I even get into the details of how I feel about the disaster artist, I have to say I have a lot of baggage with this movie. There's a lot a lot sure. of baggage for probably a lot of people, but me specifically uh, because of my enjoyment of the room. I've seen the room. I've seen it in a few. St- uh, actual like late night screenings. Uh, I've seen it like at a friend's house on DVD before, you know, it's I'm, I'm aware of the phenomenon. I've seen it a few times. It is 
a fucking hilarious movie. It is uh, truly, it begins as like, you're watching like a pretty typical, like shitty movie on Cinemax you might find at like three in the morning, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And for like 20 minutes or so, you're like, what is this garbage soft core movie I'm watching? And then it, it, the otherness really starts to not just the otherness is creeping in from the beginning, the alienness of this movie, but then mm-hmm. it just escalates and it becomes more hysterical. And, um, it becomes just something it is its own thing. I mean, you literally you're, you're like in the orbit of Tommy Wiseau's world. There's a line in the disaster artist. I think during uh, one of the more uncomfortable scenes during the production mm-hmm. of the room, <laughs> there's a lot of layers in this movie. Uh, and uh, James Franco as Tommy Wiseau says something like you're in Tommy's planet now or something like that. And it's like, that is true because for all that guy's uh, flaws or you know lack of understanding, he is in his own planet, and he is a truly unique person. There is nobody else like Tommy Wiseau on the planet, and that's what gives the room its thing. And that's mm. why I've, I've I've come to realize. Um, I should also add that my theater in Portland, Cinema Twenty One, we we show the room like. These days we show it once a month. We do a Friday like late night screening, and uh, without a doubt, in the last six months with the Disaster Artists, a whole new audience has found this movie, and the fans have been coming back in droves as well. Um, so it's just not going away. And we even bring Tommy Wiseau in for guest appearances, uh, usually once a year. And he came here. He came here last week in Portland, and we were we sold out our big theater several times over. It is insane this phenomenon of the room, and insane that it just won't die. I mean, some people compare it to something like Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's yeah. only really a fair comparison in that it's a movie that keeps playing even though it came out many years ago in these late night screenings that are very participatory with the audience. They sort of say and throw things at the screen when they watch the movie, but Mm -hmm. really beyond that it's apples and oranges because I, I I don't, I'm not a fan of Rocky horror, but I don't really think it's considered a so bad. It's good movie. It's just a like fun camp like experience, you know, and and it's a phenomenon. Like, how did a movie that's this kind of berserk get made on this scale? So there is a scale to it and a craft at work that's like impressive still. Totally, totally. And the room is just this, this, this amazing artifact. It is just an insane movie. And, um, the baggage I bring into this movie, the disaster artist is several things. Um, you, you articulated it perfectly. My main concern was like, okay, is this movie just going to be for the fans of this movie, the room? And then it's like, that's it. Like that's, that doesn't seem like a good reason to make a movie in my mind. This is, this is as the movie premiered earlier this year at like South by Southwest. I was like, that's cool. It was getting good reviews, but I'm like, still like, is this really for who's this movie for? And it seemed mm. odd to make a movie just for the fans of the room because while it is a strong cult, I mean, it is a faithful cult. I'm telling you, man, there are people that come to every screening we show of the room every month. And wow. yeah, they're some of the sweetest people that come to my theater. Uh, they're, they're adorable. They, they pick up after themselves. It's amazing. Like I, I, these people are great, but that is a small group still, even though yeah. as it's growing and expanding, that's a small group. And um, with all that baggage I bring, not to, not 
to, I can't even like begin to explain how difficult Tommy Wiseau can be to work with when he comes to your theater. Um, Mm -hmm. He is a prima donna. He is something else, man. I'll tell you. But having said all that, the disaster artist is like, I, I think that's one of the main positives of it. The, one of the big takeaways I have with it right off the bat is like, it's really entertaining. It's a lot of, it's funny. The disaster artist, um, James Franco is next level. Incredible in this movie. And that he made this movie very mainstream accept, accessible, whatever the mainstream is these days. I don't know anymore. Those lines are so blurred. It's hard to tell, but James Franco turned, a cult movie that's so bad it's good for a lot of people. And then the book called The Disaster Artist, uh, written by one of the stars of the movie and another writer that is about the making of it. And um, I've not read The Disaster Artist, but uh, I've been told that it it structures its narrative in a much different way than the movie. And mm-hmm. hearing that made made it made me more, it, it kind of dawned on me that like, okay, that's the thing. James Franco took something that could have been a little bit more interesting in the way it could have been constructed, maybe a little bit more challenging for an audience that would want us like an indie type structure, you know, or something artier and yeah. instead streamlined it and made it very linear. Uh, the disaster artist is a very linear movie and he, he took a very typical uh, beloved by the Oscars as well, sort of genre of movie, like the biopic and the movie about movies and Mm -hmm. an underdog story where someone wins out in the end, despite all the odds he wrapped all, he, he took this bizarre cult phenomenon and wrapped it into a very accessible package. And I think as like anybody that looks at the box office from this weekend, like it was probably the right choice because it brought in an audience that has, and I've been seeing it all weekend at my theater. There's so many people that have never seen the room, but they know about this movie, the disaster artist, and they want to know more. And from what I can tell, like everybody loves this goddamn movie. Um, and I, myself, I'm not going to say I love the disaster artist, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, and at the top of my list is James Franco, who is incredible again in this movie. For yeah. Me. Yeah. The whole, like, uh, it, it surprised me like pretty early on in the film that it was just like, it was a straight up kind of poppy comedy. Uh-huh. And uh, like the, there's something kind of like that could be irksome in the stunt casting quality of some, like of the ensemble. Definitely. But ultimately the cast is just too good to use that as like an effective gripe, mm-hmm. you know, like, Seth Rogen as uh, the script supervisor. Like it was just like, he does what he does best and he's great in it. Like he's really funny and um, just everybody's solid. Um, I think that there's as a straight up kind of like crowd pleasing comedy. There is there, there's like, you know, a kind of, a parallel to it could be like Ed Wood, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Burton's movie about Ed Wood, about a terrible filmmaker that was so charismatic. He still managed to get his bug eyed movies like into existence, despite all of their like glaring visible flaws. <laughs> there's like a, there's a craft at work uh, in, in how uh, Ed Wood looks. And like, I, I think that the disaster Hours is solid. There is something mildly shallow about it. Yes. For some reason, like that just is, is minorly uh, like distracting, 
but not enough to like derail my enjoyment of the movie, which was like pretty thorough. Like, and James Franco is astonishing at it. He's so good. And so like immersed in this alien life form that is Tommy Wiseau. No one knows where he's actually from. No one knows how old he is. And he is just like this puzzle of a person and he like lost himself in it. And yeah, it's just like a, there's, there is some, there is a charm to the movie that even if you can pick up its flaws, it it doesn't like detract from it. Definitely, and I think you're, you know, yeah, yeah, your your criticism of it being a shallow movie. I think I didn't think about that, but you are spot on because I, I'll put it this way, like. I didn't, as as I said, I had not read the book, The Disaster Artist, which this movie is based on. So I didn't know the actual history or, or how the room came to be. I didn't know that. But as the movie goes, like pretty early on, I was like, I, I actually, I'm curious what you thought. I, I was like, okay, I kind of know where this, I know this story without knowing this story because um, I had seen the room a, a few times and you can, it's one of those things where you can see the soul of the filmmaker so much poured into, into this inept movie that it's like not even subtext. Like the movie, the room is about the story you're seeing in the disaster artists as, yeah. as it makes clear, you know, like it's about this, this bromance that just went wrong and these two guys that wanted that are, were aspiring to do something in Hollywood, they wanted to become famous. They they wanted that dream that so many people go to L.A. for. Um, it's you know it's it's a David Lynch movie without any of the real dark fucked up you know <laughs> like lurking evil underneath. It's it is that that idea, and that was that is kind of a shallow experience in hindsight for me as well, where it's like I kind of knew where this. I knew this story without knowing the story, but that isn't what makes the disaster art a special kind of in a very meta layer uh, that like James Franco is what makes this movie special. And again, just like the room, Tommy Wiseau is this X factor that you just could not count on. You could never see coming. He's what makes the room special. Otherwise the room is just a bad movie. You see on Cinemax at three in the morning and you never see it again. There's, there are characters, Seth Rogen, I think, is the one in The Disaster Artist who says, like, as they're making this just complete train wreck of a movie, they're eating lunch uh, on set. And he says, well, best news is nobody will ever see this goddamn movie. Like, he says it offhand, and it's like, ha, 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 you know, for all of us in this position, we know that's not true. Um, and it's just, it, it's fascinating um, that you get the the, what I think is one of James Franco's best performances but you also have this meta layering of, of all these just interesting elements that add something to the movie. Um, yeah. Like the fact that James Franco and Dave Franco are playing the two leads in this. They're brothers in real life, but they're playing these characters that became friends and there's like this homoerotic tension between them at times. And I think all that's just interesting and layered and things going on. And then uh, Alison Brie, who I was told is actually Dave Frankel's wife in real life is yeah. a girlfriend. Don't I don't know that shit, man. My, my girlfriend had to tell me, that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know um, to my job all the time. They're adorable. Oh, they are adorable. And I see they, they work as she's a love interest to, to Dave's character in the movie that I just think that like, it's, it's, I'll admit it's sort of a shallow layer, but it's another layer to the movie. And it, uh, I think that's part of what 
not having also not really seen all these movies that James Franco has been directing over the last like five plus years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I know that that is a main interest of his as an artist is these, um, this sort of meta layering and commentary that exists as you're making this object, this art thing, this, this movie or whatever, but also the idea of um, he's written about this. James Franco is like the merging of the trash with the high art kind of idea Mm -hmm. or the, the, the bad movie with the good movie, traditional stuff. And that's, that's why I think ultimately the disaster artists, while just being like a, you know, a good, fun, enjoyable movie, with an amazing performance at it. It's like, it is the perfect merging of what James Franco kind of represents as a star and a creator. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm happy for him that he's made something that actually broke through because most of these films he's been putting out are like festival movies that then go to Netflix or something like, and they're like weird, like Faulkner adaptations and stuff like that. So this just seemed much more in his wheelhouse and uh, you know, I'm proud of him. I think I think he did everything he needed to do to make the best version of Disaster Artist that he could. I think. I think he and Shia LaBeouf, in terms of their <laughs> sort of meta detached commentary on the experience as a performance in itself, yeah, warrants uh, them remaking Face Off with each other. Oh my and, god, Joe! Yeah, I That's think. That's an idea. I, all right. The pitch is out there. <laughs> that is an idea, man. Holy shit. Do we get John Woo to direct the remake? Oh, I don't know. Because we know. can't have but Franco directing that. He can't do that. No, no, no. Because he really has to uh, become Shia LaBeouf. Well, here's the other question. We're going we're gonna to go down this path. Uh, okay. Who plays the Nick Cage character? I mean, who's going to out-crazy the John Travolta character? I think... Uh, I think Shia is Nick Cage. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think that um, could work. I, we got to figure out a director before this episode is over. <laughs> yeah. I think his back to what you were mentioning about him merging high art and kind of like low art. We're, we're in like a weird detached era that like we seem to have been in for quite some time, but like, uh, where it doesn't seem that, um, like craft or merit necessarily equates to exposure and popularity. Like you, you could see that with a lot of the, the, like, you know, I mean, there, there are tools at everyone's disposal. Like anyone could have a SoundCloud page. If you're a musician, anyone could have a, you know, YouTube channel, anyone can have an Instagram page. And so you can, you can generate these, like these personalities can like generate interest and draw attention to themselves without necessarily uh, having a classical sense of like a craft in place. And so like you're, you're, we're constantly grappling with like, well, this, is this good that like we're hoisting these things up to be popular because they have millions of, clicks on soundcloud or they have millions of plays on youtube and like but it's just it's a celebration of this kind of like grotesquerie and i i think that that that's what lands us in um like the the kind of political predicament we're in where it's just like there's a level of detachment where we're watching things get worse and we, we don't know why we're fascinated with that right um, and I think the, the disaster artist though, like it, it 
it's lending a sense of craft to something that is about that fascination. And so I think it is, it's an, it's an enjoyable piece about that. And like, I'm excited to see people like kind of take that idea further, but yeah. I think this is a, this is a great starting point. And, uh, I, I, I recommend people check it out. I think it's, I think it's solid. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally agree. And like, I think there's a good reason that it's already catching on. It had a very good limited release weekend. Um, uh, and it's going to, uh, it's again, it's an a two four release and like Ladybird, uh, they're going to have really good box office with this movie. And, I think I think there'll be some awards consideration for Disaster Artist. Like I, I think Franco is pretty much a shoe in to be a Best Actor nomination in my eyes. I mean, he's kind of doing a oddball version of what they love. You know, you're playing a real person. It's about movies. It's set in L.A. and it's you know based on a true story. It's got all those elements and it's the underdog thing. I I think he he he's playing in that that uh, sandbox that the Academy tends to really love. And And can you imagine like that, that being a sort of perverse, bizarro (laughs) world, like, like such a fulfillment for the real Tommy Wiseau where it's like, oh yeah, like I'm in an Oscar movie. Well, it's not you. Well, I guess you are in it. If you stayed through the whole credits, spoiler (laughs) alert. It is a very funny scene at the end credits. I recommend people watch it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hang out. Hang out exactly. Listen to that uh, that rhythm of the night at the end credits, which uh, that song comes up twice in this movie, and it's another example of like what happened to that song from <laughs> my past, and never really thought much of it except I heard it a lot in the '90s, and now it's like oh that fucking rhythm of the night track that, that is good. I'm like liking it right now. So um, yeah, not to pat myself on the back, but Brian Henderson and I who co-wrote and co-directed a short film like we we had written a bunch of like music like that into our short and then realized very quickly how hard it is to get to license that music and basically had potential producers be like you're not gonna get it you're just not gonna get this music like that flat out find find another way and we're like okay great good to know (laughs) so like (laughs) knife of the party the rhythm of the night edition (laughs) It was like, yeah, uh, it was like black box, just jock jams. It was just stuff like that. It was, you know, it kicks down. Yeah. It kicks down my nostalgia door, like pretty, pretty heavily. Ah, jock jams. Ah, Joe, I forgot all about it. Thank you for bringing me back. No problem. All right. Let's, let's move into another movie that fits in on a lot of levels. The, the meta layer levels for sure. The, the sort of um, bizarro comedy, I guess, is a connection. There's probably more. Um, yeah. It also ties into uh, the year you referenced in going to see The Blair Witch Project because the, the movie that uh, this documentary is about, the production of it, at least, uh, came out in 1999. So That's true. Um, so the movie you're referring to is The Man on the Moon, uh, mm-hmm. or Man on the Moon, with Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, which at the time was this big before it even came out a prestige thing. Jim Carrey's going to play his dream role. He's a, he's a massive fan of Andy Kaufman. He had been fighting for this movie to get made. They get fucking Milos Forman. I think two time Oscar winner, you know, he's made a couple best picture winners to make this movie. Um, the, uh, I believe the writers were the same writers behind, uh, 
people versus Larry Flint, which Foreman made mm. previously. Uh, th- I believe it's the same writers for Ed Wood, actually. Another connection. Andy and Larry, or it's like Andy Krzyzewski. I can't remember the writer's name, but there's a pair of writers that wrote Man on the Moon, and there's more connections there. And and um, so this, I think that's a good place to start before we get into this new Netflix documentary called Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. And there's a lot more in the title that I'm not... <laughs> I'm just not going to take the time is to say more so, like subtitles and colons oh, to there, be spoken. There is. I think they actually make fun of that idea. I, I will read it out then. I'm looking at it. Jim and Andy colon the great beyond hyphen featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. That's the full <laughs> title of this movie. <laughs> and uh, if that makes no sense to you as you're listening to us right now, we will try to provide some context. So it does make sense, but um First off, that, so this is the new documentary on Netflix, which is anybody, you know, has Netflix. You can watch it right now. This this documentary, Jim and Andy. And um, before we get into that specifically, because it is a fascinating movie, the man on the moon is always kind of uh, at this point in my mind and my my movie fandom. Man on the mm-hmm. moon is only sort of an odd asterisk where it's like. That movie should have been a bigger deal when it came out. It seemed like it was hyped up as going to be a big deal. For and sure. It, it kind of just whimpered when it came out. And I think Jim Carrey won the Golden Globe for it, but never uh-huh. got an never got an Oscar nomination. It never really achieved what they set I think they thought it would by being a sort of big Oscar movie. Yeah. And um I think that's Interesting, but I do remember being fairly underwhelmed by Man on the Moon when I did see it at the time, but undeniable how amazing Jim Carrey is as he just totally inhabits this Andy Kaufman role. And that's the takeaway. Like Disaster Artist, he is the key to this movie. And yeah. he was showing layers that we didn't know existed in Jim Carrey. I mean, he had done the Truman Show before that. He was start, uh-huh. he was starting to want to you know eke into something a little more prestigious a little more dramatic and he um this is like the role of a lifetime for a guy like Jim Carrey and he yet the movie I kind of want to revisit it someday but I don't really feel a pull to do it I don't know what did you think of Man on the Moon Well I think it, it came out like a little later in the fall kind of like during award season in 1999 and like despite we talk about 99 I feel like a lot a great deal. Um, the summer was really abysmal. And then the fall was just like, it was consecutive, like unbelievable movie after unbelievable movie. Uh, there was the now problematic American beauty. There was being John Malkovich. There's fight club. There's three Kings there. You know, it was the insider. And so by that time, after just like week after week of like being like, Holy shit. Oh my God. Spike Jones with the job. Who's Charlie Kaufman. This is great. A fight club. Oh my God. And then like, I think in November when it came out, it was just sort of like here, I felt like Andy Kaufman was also kind of re-entering the zeitgeist. I didn't grow up knowing his stuff at all. I think he was more of like a seventies figure. So like people really latched onto him and he, he was like this real kind of, you know, almost like punk presence of like being just anarchistic in terms of his energy and his sense of subversion of like the art form of comedy and of performance and just fucked with the form so much that he, he was some, he was, he pulled off something that I think is like really difficult to do. And so he was just like a hero and a fascination to a lot of people. We probably grew up liking. Yeah. 
so like he informed all those perspectives. And so, but he had like, it seemed like he was just reentering the zeitgeist, you know, in the few years preceding man on the moon. And so like people were writing about him, fixated on him. And then to have something, someone who is so interesting and so dynamic have like a pretty standard formulaic biopic made about them. It was just like, it's that kind of unfortunate paradigm or paradox or contradiction or oxymoron. Who the fuck knows? (laughs) All of them. um, (laughs) Yeah. All of it at once where like you have a fascinating subject and then just a boring kind of like medium to deliver it. And it's not a boring movie. It's like, it's, it's well-made it's like it's got a great cast, you know, and it was it was impressive. It just like it was just so formulaic. It didn't fuck with the form the way, you know, the Andy Kaufman seemed to, right. you know, and like and that's like to to just transition into the documentary about it. It's like it's pretty interesting because <laughs> it's just like here in Jim Carrey's performance of Andy Kaufman, he seemed to be like the, the, the movie that the documentary eventually is. It was all this footage that was behind the scenes that was buried because universal, I think didn't want it to get out to the public to expose what an asshole Jim Carrey came across as. (laughs) Cause essentially the story is Jim Carrey gave himself over and, Uh, was either convinced if you don't believe it or was taken over and was channeling Andy Kaufman. Right. So Andy Kaufman, he was Andy Kaufman in between takes. And when he wasn't him, he was Tony Clifton, one of Andy Kaufman's alter egos. And so like, it just starts off as this behind the scenes footage that was, you know, buried until it, you know, this year until it came out where it's a lot of, kind of cringy, uh, you know, like genius, <laughs> uh, the crew and the cast members, the co-stars that are all just sort of like not knowing what to do with like this energy. Yeah. And it's like, maybe that's the true embodiment of like Andy Kaufman's spirit. And like, if he wasn't, if you don't believe that he was genuinely channeling a deceased person, like it was just, like, that's the truest form that he could kind of deliver it. And so the, the honesty and the, the true honoring of this person is kind of in this buried documentary. That's only now coming out almost 20 years later. It's so fascinating, right? Because Jim Carrey even says at a point in this movie, Jim and Andy, like the footage we're seeing, he's like, that's what he thought should have been the man on the moon movie. And I think he's totally right. There are times where you can, you can hear uh, an actor or a filmmaker talking in retrospect about an older movie they made where they have ideas as to being like, that's what I wish the movie would have been. And Mm -hmm. often I'm like, eh, but I kind of liked the movie the way it was, or I didn't like that movie, but I'm not, you know, like I'm usually a little, I, I'm not always like on board specifically with that. It's it's like the idea of director's cuts aren't always the best version of a movie, you know. But yeah. uh, Jim Carrey saying that he's, I think he's right, and I think Jim and Andy is the better version of the Man on the Moon story than the movie Man on the Moon, and I think it's what elevates this documentary from just being a really really good DVD special feature into. Mm-hmm 
I don't think I think you ha- you cannot watch Man on the Moon anymore without this documentary. And I think I will always prefer this version, this documentary about it with all this amazing footage they shot behind the scenes. You still get the Andy Kaufman history and Jim Carrey's like just like fervent love and affection for this guy and for his artwork and all that. Um, you just, you cannot deny that. And I, I think he's, I think he's right. This is the version that should have come out. And I think it's so cool. It's, this is, this is like what I think is awesome about Netflix. Honestly, not that they need me to prop them up. They're doing just fine. But like this type of thing can exist now. And there's an, there's not just an audience for it. Like there's a market to put this movie out on Netflix when, that footage was never going to get seen otherwise. You know, Universal, as you mentioned, they didn't want this to come out, this footage, because they they wanted Jim Carrey to win an Oscar. They didn't want people to think he was an asshole. And that's right. so it's so fascinating. And I think um, what this footage shows so well and like whether or not he you believe that he really was like possessed by Andy Kaufman or not. He I think he nails Andy Kaufman in this behind the scenes footage, if for nothing else, because of how much time he wastes. <laughs> well, he's also him at like you asking yourself, like, well, is he or isn't he? That was constantly the the subverting like angle that Andy Kaufman seemed to be coming right. from. You it's never like, knew, right? Like you were on yeah, thin you, ice with him as a performer. You didn't know. Exactly. He, he was yeah. constantly destabilizing and like uh, subverting your expectations. So you're just like, wait, what? Wait, he's just going to read a book the whole, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Andy Kaufman read the great Gatsby, I think in full, which, you know, the man on the moon, man on the moon has that scene in the movie and it's a, it's a good scene, you know, it's fine, but you get all that information in this documentary and it's all so much more potent. It's like the best way to deliver this movie, this idea, that thing that Jim Carrey wanted to do. And, um, you also can't, you cannot undersell in my mind how fascinating of a subject Jim Carrey is as a documentary subject, because you've got this amazing footage that most of this movie uses for, for you to observe, but interspersed throughout it, you, you don't just have talking heads, plural. It's just Jim Carrey in a sort of, uh, uh, like, is that, what's that Errol Morris movie, the fog of war, I think where it's that sort of the cameras just, just on the subject. And then, they are the only one being interviewed in the present day. Yeah. yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that tactic um, and the documentarian who made this movie, Chris Morris made like American movie. Like he he's, he was a good fit uh, for, for this Jim and Andy movie. But I think that tactic works really well because Jim Carrey is still to me, like a very special actor in my mind. Like I was the right age growing up in the early nineties where fucking Ace Ventura and, and the mask movies that haven't necessarily held up very well. But I think one that does is dumb and dumber. I think as just a classic dumb comedy, it's so mm-hmm. brilliant in my mind. And Jim Carrey was my favorite thing. And at that time, um, it's just my absolute favorite thing. And he makes me laugh still. And yet this movie also gets across what's kind of sad about Jim Carrey, but that's okay. It's all a part of this process that he as a person in this documentary and in real life, I I think is like Jim Carrey is, he's got, he's a deep thinker. And I, I didn't really know that about him until this movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been surfacing in the last couple of years. It'd Mm -hmm. be like, you know, 
know, there'd be interviews with him, you know, either about his kind of painting and artwork or just like, can you believe Jim Carrey said this weird new age shit on the red carpet for, you know, whatever it was. And it's trying to point out what an anomaly he is, but it's like, he's still, he's still very clearly coherent and Mm -hmm. very like, he's a lot of people who I think kind of, float off on a tangent are sort of like unreachably fragmented at a certain point, you know, what, whether it was just the job and the nature of celebrity that shattered them, like who knows, but it's just like, there's something kind of like far gone about like people who, who kind of glimpse too much. And it's just like, he, he seems to be to look at things from a completely different angle in a way that's still very much like rooted and coherent and you know him staring at the camera and being like well this is all just an illusion like none of this is real it's just like oh that's kind of huh i mean it's not not necessarily a new idea but it's like not the most uncomfortable thing to have someone making eye contact with me and telling me that (laughs) and like but he's not gone like he's very present and like it's it's also an interesting point in his career because it it seemed like that experience and like his dedication to the performance sort of uh detonated him in a weird way where it was like he he used up like uh like his his true tribute to Andy Kaufman you know <laughs> is is in the in the like scenes we didn't see in man on the moon that wind up in this documentary. And like, that is probably exhausting. You know, it has to be exhausting. And it seemed to like, he mentions it in the documentary is like, I couldn't do it anymore. Like, and he didn't take any time off. Like, I think he was plugged back in like pretty quickly with like stuff like me, myself and Irene, which is terrible. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, he's, he started being more selective about the films he was in. And so he's making really interesting choices now, like, being in the bad batch and stuff exactly. like that. Bad batch makes so much more sense now after seeing this movie, right? Like him in yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also just interesting. Cause like I, I was really, you know, as an actor of, you know, some, some like in a very minor sense, like it's hard to watch that shit, like the behind <laughs> the footage stuff. Like, mm-hmm. cause I don't, I don't like people that do that. Honestly, <laughs> people who don't break character. It's just like, you're being an asshole. Like, well, and, and also he's wasting his coworkers time. He's that's what yes. I kept saying. I was like, he is wasting these people's time. And that is so rude. It's, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, it's yes. Yeah, detrimental. And I just wonder if like, uh, cause you know, like those, those sets, like even when they're not shooting, like they're so much fucking money being pumped through every, every light that's on every uh-huh. like, you know, craft service table that's up and running. It's so much money. And to like, you know, it, it also just seemed like a time where, you know, like that level of fuckery was p- still possible. <laughs> I don't know that anything like this could exist on this scale anymore. I know we say that a lot about a lot of different parts of films. Oh, but, but like, it's true, man, for this one, big time. Yeah, just like that, that level of kind of like craft and immersion and experimentation like you know it's just it's no wonder like that the film didn't get shut down you know (laughs) it's so funny to see the some of the footage where milos foreman is like at his wits end he's like i need andy i don't need tony jim he's like trying to just play along to get this shit in the can you know (laughs) it's so funny man like but yet it's 
complex because I'm also at the same time wrestling with the idea that Jim Carrey is an asshole in this scenario. Like he produced an amazing performance, an amazing piece of art. And this documentary is the other, it's the like offshoot B side. That's actually more preferable in my mind to it. Like all this amazing stuff was created, but yet I'm wrestling with these complicated feelings. And I think that's what makes Jim and Andy such a, such a perfect, it's so great that it came out in 2017 because everybody is now, I think hopefully more more woken up to the idea of like you can have contradictory ideas in art and in life. They exist all the time in people, right? That like I can both be detested by this behavior and also find it very entertaining, special and like beautifully artistic at the same time. It's all these things. And this movie is so wrapped up. It has those ideas wrapped all around it. And it's, it's, it's such a special, just bizarre thing that exists. And I am thankful that it exists. It's 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 something, man. It's this is a really cool movie, you know, and I hope people find it because Netflix is obviously putting lots of new content every freaking week on their uh, on it, but yeah. This is one that I hope uh can can sort of rise to the surface. Uh you know, they uh, uh, get, you know, I'll put it this way. I don't even feel like I'm I can be bothered, Joe, to finish Stranger Things season 2. I'm I'm two episodes in and I really don't care. I'll be honest. So that's obviously where everybody is going on Netflix. I say find Jim and Andy. That's, that's my speed on Netflix. And I guess my point is not to, not to shit all over stranger things. I'm glad it exists. It's great. Fine. But just that all this stuff can exist in this, in this air in Netflix. That's very cool yeah. to me. Yeah. I mean, there, I almost feel like you're just like, Eric, your rants like two to three weeks too late. Like everybody <laughs> already watched. They're like, yeah, of course, move on from Street. We're all done watching it. <laughs> um, it's my line in the but, sand. I'm, I'm not going yeah, past it. Yeah, I would say real quick. I know it's boring, but like once enough balls are in the air with the new season of Stranger Things, it does really come to life. So okay. you finished it. You did. I did, yeah, and um, really right. the last the last twenty minutes of the finale is like all I wanted from the whole season. I was like, kid, just give me this show. This is great. Um, <laughs> okay, so but, uh, twenty. I'll, I'll make it through all of it to get that last twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, but it it does wrap nicely around to like the our hype discussion because it's just yeah. like. Every everything seems to be focused on whatever show it is at the time, like whatever is just released. You know, like what everybody is sort of like uh, attentively devouring this one thing, and it's it's everything. Uh, it's the worst, or it's everything. You know, it's just like this, this constant, insistent energy, and it's like there's there's a whole world of things that like we're lucky to have available to us, and in order to assure that they still exist, we have to watch them. So mm. we have to watch. All right. That sounds like really <laughs> like <laughs> burdensome, but uh, you should, you know, you should take the time. There's like a lot of shows that like no one's watching that. I'm just like, yeah, I just like this lonely little room that I'm, that I seem to be the only one in <laughs> happened with like true detective season two. It's like, everybody hates this show now. I, I kind of still like it. And then <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. It's, still, oh. it's, so, uh, 
spacious in here. No one's in here with me. I mean, that's how I felt when the Bad Batch came out to circle it back to that is I was like, are me and Joe the only people that want to be friends with this movie? Like, does everybody else just hate this person? This 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 poor movie? Like, yeah, I get um, I also get why people didn't like that movie. But I I it's a, I think I it's know, kind as, of as, awesome. You know, as yeah, as time goes on, like I maybe I don't get why people have a problem with it. So um, unfortunately, the man on the moon isn't available to watch on Netflix. Like, so you can't really watch it in tandem with Jim and Andy, the great beyond with a contractually obligated, uh, per whatever the fuck the title is. Almost got there. Uh, okay. <laughs> but you can watch the bad batch. Yeah. So if you want some like new Jim Carrey performance, then just like cue that up right away afterwards. And it's, it'd be a good double feature. Here, here. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up episode 160 of Adjust Your Tracking? What do you say? Sounds good. So just chill to the next episode. Cool, man. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, before we do wrap up this episode, Joe, I'm, I'm going to just slide it in there. I liked me, myself, and Irene when it came out. So boo on you. <laughs> oh, it's a hateful movie. I've only seen it the one time, but I remember just being like, this is gross. And like, oh. I was at a where I was really responsive to gross. It was an inflammatory kind of early 2000s time where it's just like, yeah, do whatever you want, say whatever you want. Do you mean gross but, out uh, humor, like poop and fart joke stuff? Or no, do you just mean just like, like in spirit? It's, it's like a, in spirit, like yeah, on yeah. top of everything else. Hey, maybe you should hold up. Yeah, could be. Did I cut you off? You were going to say that, weren't you? Uh, yeah, but I mean, we can finish each other's sentences. I'm not, I'm not above that we're like the safty brothers <laughs> mm-hmm. they're adorable in interviews they always finish each other's sentences so cute anyway all right well i think that is going to be a future hold up someday we'll, we'll get to it um i'm gonna really really when i want to just make you suffer through something you hate I'll, I'll bust that out or the brown bunny i still got in my pocket so someday yeah someday yeah. <laughs> that what a, what a, what a harrowing <laughs> double feature that would be <laughs> Yeah, what what do you start with? You probably start with Brown Bunny, so you get some levity in the next option. But uh, that's a, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there someday. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, with all that said, why don't we properly wrap up this episode 160 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find uh, us and all of our episodes, along with all the episodes of our other shows, at theplaylist.net. Just click on the podcast tab, and you'll be taken to, uh, as I said, the Playlist Podcast Network. Um, and all our shows are there. You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. You can find us on SoundCloud, subscribe, rate and review iTunes and Stitcher. Um, how can people uh, contact us in the social media realm, Joe? Um, Twitter at adjustyourtrack and Facebook. Just look up the Adjust Your Tracking podcast. Um, if you happen upon the documentary called Adjust Your Tracking, you could do that too. It's a good documentary. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, we're the Jim and Andy and they're the man on the moon maybe, but that, I don't mean to slag off the documentary. It's, it's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if you do that, all that stuff, we'd be very thankful, but of course, never as thankful as I am to get to just have a little chat with you, Joe. So thank you. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>